Welcome to Kindly Gifted. I'm your host, Kate Tarantiva, and I can't wait to unwrap the world of influence with you. Every day, your gifted episodes, see what I did there, to help you become fluent in the business of creativity and learn the best kept industry secrets to creating an online presence worth remembering. It's really like having a momager on speed dial. So let's dive into it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. As always, I'm hopping in here to give you some tea about our guests before you continue into the lovely conversation that we had. Katie Stoller is an influencer marketing expert that advises both creators and brands essentially on how to build relationships with each other and work together. Um, She has over a decade of experience at global PR agencies where she's worked with brands like Ikea, Wendy's, Dunkin', LG, Whirlpool, Cheerios, Haagen-Dazs, the list goes on. Um, And essentially her role was facilitating those collaborations between creators and the brands that she worked for. Um, Katie is a proud member of the Women in Influencer Marketing Professional Group, which is one of the most esteemed groups in the influencer marketing world. So if you work in influencer marketing, I highly recommend checking it out. It's led by Jesse Grossman, who's freaking amazing. Um, but anyways, Katie lives in the Chicago suburbs with her husband, two kids, and their Japanese chin. How cute. Um, anyways, tune into the conversation where Katie spills the tea on how to stand out on social media in 2023. Enjoy. I am really excited to have Katie on the show today. She is an expert in influencer marketing and PR over the last 10 years, working with all kinds of really cool brands, Wendy's and Ikea. It's exciting to chat with you on how influencers and creators and anybody in the creator economy can stand out in an oversaturated space, especially with the creator economy being so prioritized now and so many different platforms trying to get creators attention yeah i'm so excited to be here and chat i love this is like my favorite thing to chat about so um yeah so i can give a little bit of history about my background and as part of that i'll tell a little funny story of how i got started in influencer marketing because i think it's interesting um but i graduated during the last big recession and kind of like didn't know what i was going to do i randomly moved to la to like live out my california dreams and found myself working at a boutique fashion PR agency, like surrounded by celebrities. This was back in the days when the paparazzi were like stalking celebrities back in like the Hills era. (laughs) And that was kind of my first like foray, I guess you could say into influencers, but influencers were completely non-existent at that time. Nobody knew what that word, you know, associated it with what influencers are today, but it kind of got like my juices going in my head of like what this world could be. And I loved pop culture and celebrity and all that. So From there, I moved back to Chicago, where I'm from, went to grad school um, for PR and advertising, and kind of formally started my career out in the agency world, um, starting at Ogilvy, moving on to Ketchum and Golan. Um, But at Ogilvy, I was pitching media, as one does in a PR agency, and we were struggling with getting press for one of my clients, and I had remembered that one of my girlfriends from my sorority had started a blog. Like everyone had a blog back then. This is like 2013-ish. Right. And it was like the heyday, you know? So 
Um, long story short, this is kind of a long story, but long story short, I basically like pitched her. I was like, would you post this product? Um, it was a Whirlpool brand called Gladiator, which like they outfit like cool garages, like rich people have, you know, those like perfect pristine garages with everything hanging. That was like the product that they had. So she was moving. I pitched her. She's like, yeah, send me some product. I'll send you a bunch of pictures. Um, sent me like literally like 35 professionally done pictures, did an amazing blog post on it. And literally like I had created influencer marketing, like not just me, other people were doing this around the world, but this was, you know, 2013, no money was exchanged, no contracts. But that was really when I was like, this is something, this is going to be big media is, you know, you put it out there and the reporters can put whatever they want on paper. You know, there's no ownership, but with influencers, there's this like level of control and it's more creative and visual and all that stuff. So that's kind of what started me really into the influencer space. And from that day on, pretty much I focused more on the influencer side rather than like the kind of traditional PR side. But, um, and now currently I, um, work, with both influencers and brands to kind of, you know, be that in between for deals, um, working also with UGC creators, not just traditional influencers anymore as things have sort of shifted over the past year, but love the creative process. And, you know, I always go back to that story because that's really like the essence of the industry. Yeah, for sure. What are some things that you would say like influencers don't know about how things work on the brand side because I being in the same space as you there's just like certain things where you're like oh my god how do they not see this but they're not on that side of things and what are some things like what having been on the brand side that you're like oh my god why don't they know this oh my god there's so many I have so many good friends who are managers influencer managers and like run agencies and we are it's so funny because like it's the same pain points come up and we're on totally opposite sides and like it's friendly argument you know it's it's good for us to have these discourses but it's the same like couple things that managers feel so strongly about and brands feel so strongly about, but for two like completely different reasons, because we have totally different, you know, ways of going about doing these deals. But like negotiating, for instance, like, you know, in in our managers and influencers will send me like a rate card, mm-hmm. which like, basically means nothing because like I'm the one that has the money. So like you telling me, I mean, you should always have a bottom line right. to create what you're going to like, what your bottom line is. I won't do this for less. And that is 100% something you should have. But like setting the budget you know, it's, it's a song and dance. And that's always funny. Cause like, they're always like, well, tell me your budget. And I'm like, I'm not telling you my budget. You tell me, you know, what your bottom line is. And, it, and there's kind of this like back and forth. And I totally understand why like we look at it differently. Cause like, I'm trying to get my clients or the brands the best bang for their buck, but also making sure I'm, you know, giving a fair rate to the influencer while the influencer is trying to, you know, get as much money as they can for their business. It makes sense. Um, so things like that, but that's why I'm so like into you know, open communication and being friends with the other side. I feel like when you get too caught up in one side or the other, you don't have these conversations. And then, you know, you're like, this person's just a bad negotiator, but it's like, we all have our reasoning for why we do things. And then the other big thing I would just say is the amount that goes into planning an influencer program does not start at the influencer. Like influencers usually like one of the last steps. So in a PR, if it's coming from a PR agency, which a lot of times does manage the influencer budget, um, you know, that's a little bit changing, but it historically it, the influencer budget just comes out of whatever the PR budget is. 
typically influencers coming in like late to the game. Like we might be part of the strategy, but usually there's like months and months and months of like content and prep and pitching media and putting together campaigns and maybe doing events. And then they'll be like, Oh, can we invite some influencers? Mm. You know, in. So a lot of times these managers will be like, how about, you know, we do this or how about you work with other people on my roster? And I'm like, this program's almost over. Like, mm. I, like there's no how about at this point, you know? Right. So that's another thing I think that manager, I work mostly with with managers, sometimes talent, but that's a lot of, a lot of times with managers will, you know, ask these questions. And I'm like, I wish you like knew a little bit more about what goes into it because sometimes the questions just don't even like really make sense. Um, but there's a million more things. But... <laughs> Brand deals are so hot now. And I think a lot of creators are making the majority of their income on brand deals, which like that's a whole separate conversation. But how do you stay top of mind for a brand and from your perspective, like relationship building? Because I don't think that a lot of them have that capability. And like you said, may often be like, oh, well, I have a manager. That manager can build a relationship for me. I don't have to worry about it. Perhaps from you, from the receiving end of that communication, what tips would you have for a creator or a manager to like actually build a relationship with you instead of being like, I need this, this amount of money and that's it. So it becomes a transactional kind of thing. Right. And it, this might be like sort of an unpopular opinion. I'm just totally, I'm just trying to be as real as I can, but it's tough because I would get, I don't know, four to five inbound pitches with media kits like per day sometimes. Like, and the amount, and I've worked with probably close to a thousand creators. Like, I was trying to do the math the other day. I'm like, it's definitely over like five to 600. I, it might be closer oh to a thousand because I've done like campaigns, you know, 10, 15 people at a time through, on three clients at once. Like, so that's just, you know, over the course of 15 years. So, uh, just think of it that way. I mean, they're, like we're being pitched to, and then we're also, you know, discovering people on our own in our own like social media bubbles. Like I'm on my own channels, finding people that I love that I think would be great for clients. So there's just this like oversaturation, as you said earlier, of uh, honestly talented people on the internet that would be great for my brands. So I don't really have a great answer. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in pitching PR people, brand people. I just don't think that that's the only route we should go because you know if we're getting five of those a day if they're if you're not doing something like so specific that right. happens to match up with whatever my brand is you're probably not going to stand out like it's just really hard my best people that I go to when I'm like in a bind and need people are managers and it's just because they have more people than one person so like I have a friend that represents multicultural creators like I know that if I need a multicultural creator, she's got like six girls that are amazing. Right. Um, and then, you know, like Kensington Gray is an amazing agency for black creators. Like I, I go to them all the time. I used to represent a black bank. Um, so like th there's things in just my head of like, I know kind of where to go to, but there are, I will say there over the years, there, there has been some amazing creators that just perform really well, get back to me on time. That's a huge one. Just like being responsive, like, instantly moves you up to the top of my brain. Um, I love their content. I see that they're working with other really amazing brands that like just pop in my head, mm -hmm. you know, really know what they're doing to get them to kind of rise to the top aside from just being like legit creators and good people to work with. But you know, that's huge. And, and honestly, you do stand out when, when you are responsive and professional because so many influencers aren't. Mm. 
you know, and not to their fault. A lot of them, you know, especially TikTok, like a lot of them are kids that like are just figuring this out as they go. Um, but those things are so important, you know, right. just being, you know, a good person to work with really, really goes the distance. Speaking of figuring things out as you go, how do you feel about the recent Michaela scandal with the mascara? Do you have any thoughts about that? Is it like the lash or she had like fake lashes on her? Yeah, yeah. Like, because there's so many different theories going around. And from me as a fellow marketer, I'm like, I could see how brand could ask her to do that. Maybe that's why she didn't disclose. I could see how she maybe felt insecure and felt the need to do that herself. But from your perspective as somebody who's hiring creators to do these types of things, what thoughts did you have on this whole situation? Well, my first thought was like, kind of like, how did that happen? Because like we, as a, as the brand side, and I'm like very anal about this, but I am like, I like to coach. Like I, I, I hate doing reshoots. I hate giving feedback. I want you to like do a good job the first time, which makes more work on the front end a lot of times, which I'm okay with. And a lot of, a lot of influencers like appreciate that because they want to do it right. 100%. So I'm just kind of like, did no one like, what did, did, was this a conversation? Did she ask, did they say, don't worry about it? Go ahead. No one will know. Like that seems probably unlikely because there's sleuths all over the world that can figure this stuff out. So I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my first thought was like, that's probably something that needs to start going in contracts. Like it's probably wasn't in the contract because people probably were like, no one would ever do that. Right. Um, you know, and, I, and I've seen a lot of the commentary too of people being like, you know, I feel bad for her. She has anxiety and she wanted to do a good job. And, you know, there's that whole side of it, but you know, it brings back the whole conversation around like authenticity and like, like I, my, my thing with this is just like, it's not that hard to be real. Like, right we make it such a big thing, be authentic. And this one's more authentic than that one. And I, I'm just such an open book type of person. That's just how I am. That like people that strive so hard not to be authentic is like odd to me. Like, like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like the aspirational days of Instagram was fun, but it never really fully like sat well with me. Cause I'm like, this isn't real. Like I, right. to me, it just was always so obvious that it wasn't real. And now that we are in this like more authentic era, it's like embrace that, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to like, I don't know, create woo woo on this topic. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I completely I understand what you're saying. Just be honest, you know? Yeah. There was this interesting conspiracy theory going around that this was done on purpose based on how she handled it or lack thereof there was no addressing like oh crap i didn't realize this was a legal issue you know because there's false advertising involved then here i remember seeing somebody on tiktok the other day basically being like i honestly think that this was created to target other influencers so that they would go buy the mascara review it to see if that's actually the effect that it gives and then it creates additional marketing out of this one influencer ad it allows other influencers to jump on the conversation and give their communities the opportunity to then go and buy that mascara because i mean let's be really honest how many mascaras are really that different from each other right they have to get creative with the way that they market all of these different launches i don't know if that's true because i don't work for the brand but it seemed believable enough when I sat really thought about it I was like oh, I'm gonna be surprised if L'Oreal tried to do this like meta creator marketing strategy 
I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the Dubai trip that was like just so crazy. And it's like, personally with these like kind of like conspiracy things, I I, I just don't think people are like, I don't want to say smart enough. I don't mean that rude, but like, like have enough time slash or smart enough to like think of these things. I truly think that the, that the tart trip was like intended. I think they did know that it was going to make a big splash because it's the first big one since the pandemic. Right. So like that alone from a PR perspective was going to get pressed. Like that, that was a no brainer, but I don't think they were as, you know, what's the word? Like, prescribes everyone is like saying i think they were like let's do a brand trip with hot tiktok people right i I don't think it was that strategic either yeah (laughs) people are like dissecting it i'm like brands do trips to cool places with influencers all the time like that's that happens all the time tart is known for doing that right and i think like obviously inviting alex earl like obviously was going to like bring that press like we she she could like pick her nose and she gets pressed like she does everything <laughs> to get pressed you know so so but I just I feel like people are like well they did this and they purposely invited these two people and they pur- and I just don't think there was that much thought behind it coming from a brand I've worked on massive fortune 100 companies we everything is strategic for like getting attention in like a very like traditional sense there's not a lot of like let's powwow on you know if this executive talks about us, then that, you know, there's not a lot of like strategy like that going on. It's like, you know, what topical things are happening that we can jump on. Like it's very much kind of like what you would think those are the behind the stage. Yeah. And also Alex Earl and most of the other influencers that are on there are consistently selling out product. So it's really smart for them to, to bring those people on if they're already providing an ROI organically. I agree. I think there was a lot, an unnecessary amount of dissection. And in reality, it's just like, what can get us sales? Oh, let's yeah, get Tart these. definitely did not think that it, that the press that they were getting and the organic chatter on social was going to be about the fact that they did the trip. I don't think they ever in a million years, I think they thought they were going to get it from Alex. They thought, you know, maybe there'd be some drama or something with the girls or whatever, but I don't think they ever in a million years would ever have guessed that the majority of the chatter was about the fact that they did a trip, if that makes sense. Like right. how bad that, but like, I, I don't think the brand people ever would have guessed that. I mean, I could be wrong, but it just seems so like kind of random how that's what became the, the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they played it off really well. I think their founder made some jokes on their TikTok and they did a really good job with trying to play it off and join the conversation. But yeah, it, it is very interesting how sometimes you just can't predict what's going to be the thing that's going to captivate people's attention. So it's constantly a, a game. And also because there's so many of these different platforms have drastically different types of audiences where like on Instagram, people are maybe a little bit more curated on TikTok, They speak their mind like nothing else. And so it you just can never predict like what's going to resonate with these different types of communities. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, in terms of being out, there's so many creators are in the creator economy now. I mean, the valuation is in the tens of billions of dollars and we're seeing products now like kids toys that are a wooden vlog kit. Hilarious. The creator economy is truly a career that people have, which means it gives room for so many to enter the space and monetize off of the internet, but that creates some saturation that people are worried about. How do you 
feel about is the space oversaturated and how can people stand out amongst all these other creators trying to get a chunk of the change oh my god um well i have two kids so i like feel this deeply as like a mom too i have a two-year-old and a four-year-old so they're still little but like the stat and i might be like miss saying this but i think the stat is that like last year or whatever um in a poll like the number one response for what to be was an influencer or two it was like yeah um, you know, and like my son wants to be a policeman. I'm like, I hope he like keeps that for a while and not go <laughs> influencer. But like, um, I don't know. It, it like as someone that came out of the like 2010s era of influencing and just like blogs, like you know, it was almost like the best one sort of rose to the top. There was oversaturation then too, but the you know consistent ones that out good content that like made smart business decisions were the ones that are like still around cupcakes and cashmere you know i'm a huge emily schumann fan mm-hmm. um kathleen barnes from carrie bradshaw live like there was like this core group of those women that you know built ariel charn is something maybe like that built these like careers and brands but if you think about that era there's like i don't know i would guess like maybe like 200 of them that like really really made it in a sense so so I guess like, you know, it's like a funnel It like, you know, it starts with a lot of people and then like the good ones kind of like come to the top, whatever. And I, it's just now with the oversaturation, like, I don't know what the answer is. Like, is there going to be in five years, are there going to be like 500 TikTokers that everyone knows? And that's kind of it. Like, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is that like, everyone can't be famous on TikTok because right. the whole point is that you're there for an audience. If everyone is the creator then who's the audience, you know, like, right. like, yes, you can be both, I guess, you know, but not everyone's going to be Kim Kardashian. Like that's just fact. Right. So I worry that like we're setting kids up to see the Alex Earls of the world and to see even, you know, like the cap cupcakes and cashmere from my generation of the world. And people think if they just like are consistent and, you know, if they follow kind of these like pillars, they'll be that, but like not everyone's, you could be perfect and not become that. So I don't know. I, I, I take it more from the, like, I just don't want people to follow this dream that, you know, not everyone is going to achieve. It's, it's, it's kind of like back when I was a kid and everyone wanted to be a singer or, you know, be the next Britney Spears. Like, you know, it's a very, very, very steep drop off of who gets to that level. So not to be like total Debbie Downer, but you know, it's one thing if you do it out of passion. And I think a lot of like thought leaders, like people like you, you know, that spend their time creating content, but you're like educating and you're doing it for a specific audience. That's one thing. But if your aim in life is to become an Alex Earl, like celebrity level lifestyle creator. Yeah. That's really hard. That can like do that, you know? And if that's what you want to monetize as your career, like that's what scares me. Yeah, I agree. I think, the glamorization of the lifestyle influencers real but i think also at the same time while the lifestyle space is oversaturated most of them are going to get weeded out to be really honest and we'll have to we'll be forced simply to narrow down an area of expertise or you know become a startup founder and then you build your personal brand independently of that the other part is being incredibly savvy of how to navigate the internet in ways that are not just, oh, I want to be a lifestyle influencer because you have to think about what are the different ways that I can serve people and impact 
the world because it's a business like any other, right? So any other product-based business starts with what's a problem I can solve. And I think influencers need to start thinking the same way if they want to stand out in this space and maybe chase more than just like, oh, I can be an influencer and I can work with brands. What else can you do? Because that's then how you end up owning a piece of the internet and claiming it as your own and doing other things and expanding that into exactly like you mentioned before, like the Daniel Bernsteins and, you know, Ariel Charnas and all these other people that are not just, I mean, most of them have probably even shut down their blogs by now, but they're product founders or they have startups or they have all kinds of other different ventures that have been able to be stemmed from these presences that they built so long ago. But do you think, I'm going to put this back on you as a question because I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, do you think though that like that ship has kind of sailed? And I don't know. I don't know the answer, but like, because I think the Danielle Bernstein, the Ariel Turner's, the Emily Schumann's like, we had no idea. No, what. it was completely unplanned. Like, but that's it's the thing so is like random. Like, can, yes. can that be replicated now? Can well, it, how does people can now, you know, start this and then turn it into that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've thought about that too. I think actually I was talking about this with somebody yesterday who said, Well, it's very interesting because in that era, nobody was monetizing except for journalists off of blogging or whatever. So they did it strictly because they just loved it. And I think that the key was that if you're passionate about something and you're genuinely interested in it, it's a lot easier to turn that into some sort of monetizable opportunity than if immediately out the gate, you're like, I want to be famous. It's all about me and I'm going to be rich because of my amazing lifestyle. I think that immediately goes and then they get weeded out and they're just no longer interesting. But I, yeah, it's, it's really hard to answer that question just because there's so many people monetizing that there's this glamorization now. You have so many eyes on you as well at all times. It's really hard to say, but unlike before, there's so many opportunities for creators. They can be on TV. They can become singers. They can start product businesses immediately out the gate. Whereas like somebody like Danielle Bernstein, I mean, she was blogging for like, what, 10 years before she was like, I'm going to start a clothing line. You know, it's very interesting. There's pros and cons on each side, but it requires actual strategy on a creator's end and not waiting until you have a manager or a publicist to adopt a strategy. Yeah. I just wonder if the like manufacturing of a brand and like I know this is like kind of your specialty but like if the manufacturing of it is going to affect the like the ultimate success like I was listening to your podcast on personas versus personal brands and like I love that I love that differentiation but I I feel like you know you're a clear differentiation between the two but I feel like some of these like up and coming TikTok they don't even have a chance to decide agreed 100% yeah. Whereas the personal brand first, their personal because they blow up in 15 seconds, like one video takes off and then they're like, crap, now I'm the like, you know, girl that walks on a treadmill when I work from home and that's my brand. It wasn't <laughs> my choice, but that's my brand. You know, and it's like, it's almost like TikTok like sort of tells you, I did a LinkedIn post about this, but TikTok sort of like gives you your niche these days. It like sort of tells you what you're going to be known for. Right. And it's hard for me to like reconcile the girl that walks on her trouble, I love her, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, Christina, I don't even know her name. Um, but, like, it's hard to reconcile, like, her becoming the next 
like clothing design. Like, I don't know, like when Ariel and Danielle and Emily put like 10 years of blood, sweat and tears into like organically just doing it for the love of doing it, you know? And like that, I think that's what it is for me as I'm like talking this out is like that instant kind of virality doesn't give you like sort of like the learning, the ability to learn it really grow methodically. Like you said, the earlier influencers that kind of walked so we could run um, were the ones that also had a longer opportunity to think about what is it that I want to be known for and how can I make impact and what am I truly interested in? Whereas now the question is, what do I need to do to go viral? Right. There's an issue in that. It's, whoa, instant gratification. I'm going to go chase that. Okay, you chase instant gratification, then you're going to be instantly irrelevant. So there's this prioritization on longevity that a lot of the earlier creators have or ones that are lucky enough to get really good mentors from the beginning or a publicist or a team or something like that. Whereas I'm not as concerned about oversaturation is because there's so many people worried about getting viral and they don't understand that you need to keep it. And that's the hard work. It, the going viral is the easy part now. It wasn't before. Um, right. Yeah, it's a very interesting space because I totally remember like, the old school bloggers and Lauren Conrad and like Kiara Ferrani and all these creators that truly we're so invested in the long game. And we have some of those now too, like Mr. Beast and Colin and Samir and Alex Cooper or Caller Daddy. We have so many, but again, the common thread between all of those is that they also have long form content and that's where they put in most of their energy. They know how this shit works, that they're not phased by the virality. I hate to even like say this cause I, nothing against her, but even like Charlie D'Amelio, like she was kind of the first one that like took off on TikTok and like no one talks about her anymore. I mean, she's still relevant and she's way under my like age bracket of being interested in. So maybe I'm missing something, but like, I mean, they had that like random show. I don't know how I didn't seem like that did very well, but like, she's not popping up everywhere. Like she was for that like two year period. Yeah. So we don't really have a bucket of examples from TikTok that have shown staying power. I mean, we don't have, obviously it just hasn't been around long enough, but I'm curious, like, are we going to remember, and I hate to keep using Alistair, I feel horrible. (laughs) Just as someone that's always popping up everywhere and getting so much press, like, I'm curious, like in three years, say, maybe not next year, but in a couple of years, like, is she going to, like is she gonna start a fashion line I'm, I'm sure she'll do something she's smart but I'm just curious like what what is gonna be the difference between the Charlie D'Amelio's and the Ariel Charnas's because I think it's different like I think it's a different playing field times are very different right and I'm just I'm very curious kind of the trajectory of both like I'd love to see it like plotted out on <laughs> do you think that's also why maybe people are going to YouTube because they're starting to put two plus two equals four together and they're being like oh Maybe I should actually create a relationship with my audience because they're the ones that are paying my bills, basically, not these fleeting moments of virality. Do you think maybe that's why YouTube is also becoming so popular now and the resurgence of that again? Yeah, I feel like YouTube creators, like, well, I don't know. I guess YouTube creators have always just done it right. Like, I feel like YouTube is the one channel that just hasn't gone like this it's just sort of always been like steadily, you know, moving. Yeah. And the people that are on it, they, you know, got these massive followings of people that watch their every move. 
but it is so authentic to like to use that buzzword again. But I, I don't know about these like TikTok viral, viral moments moving onto the platform. Like I, I don't have enough data cause I haven't you know, really seen too many do it. Um, you know, that's not been like an area that I focused on, but I'm curious again, like if, you know, if our, if Alex decides to go on to YouTube and start a channel, like what's that movement going to look like? Right. You know, it, we saw it a little bit with Instagram to TikTok. There are people that were massive on Instagram. Like they were popping up in my stories. I was watching them every night before I went to bed. They went on TikTok that I didn't even realize went on TikTok. I'm like, I don't even follow them on TikTok. Right. So audiences don't always stick. Like sometimes you like watching the content on one of the channels for whatever reason. You prefer long form. You prefer Instagram stories. You prefer the, you know, realness of TikTok, but that might not make your audience move around with you. So I don't know. I just, my, my one thing is I just don't think moving to YouTube, if it isn't your primary platform that you started on is, has a high, high chance of being profitable and because you're not used to doing long form. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. But it also like has to be incredibly well thought out. A lot of creators are like, I'm going to go to YouTube because everybody's going on YouTube and they're apparently going to be monetizing soon. You realize monetization takes a long time. That's an investment of time and energy and giving people information or value for free for a long period of time before you actually are able to see a return on that. I also think that a lot of the people that are going to go to YouTube are maybe going to put up two, three videos and be like, oh, this didn't happen instantly. So I'm just going to go back to doing either shorts if they're going to stay or they're going to go to reels or they're just going to stay on TikTok. People saying TikTok losing its hype. I see that, but I also at the same time see them really dominating the short form market simply because not everybody's good at long form. All these people that have never spoken a single time in their videos are going to go and speak in a YouTube channel and people are like, I don't like your personality. Like maybe don't do that. And they're just going (laughs) to, and they're just going to live well on TikTok. It's also up to the creator, whoever they're working with, like a strategist or a manager to really put some thought into what makes the most sense for my community and for what I'm trying to achieve on the internet. Cause everybody has different goals and like YouTube just doesn't work for everybody. Right. Like even the get ready with me girls and the day in the life girls, like imagine watching like 30 minutes of that. Like what would they even talk about? Like in those like 30 second clips or a minute clips, like there's not even that much depth there, but it's interesting cause it's quick and like, you know, it's going to be over. So you're like, I'll stick around for the whole thing. Like curious what color lip gloss she's going to pick out, you know, at the end of this video. But like, how could you even make that yeah. a 30 video? You know, I mean, I guess you could, but, and I'm sure there'd be some people that would eat it up, but I don't think the same level of creators that found that interesting on TikTok is going to also find a 30 minute version of that interesting. Unless you did social listening on your channel and you were like, people really love the time that I spend in the gym or they really love my home decor, then maybe I could do workouts on a YouTube channel or maybe home decoration or something. It also requires you to be like savvy in that sense, which is also to your point why we have one Kim Kardashian and we have the 1% of creators that are able to truly expand beyond just this rinse and repeat strategy. Yeah. And I, not to like get all like kind of like political and I don't mean that in any way, but it's also like a privilege to be able to test. Like think about how many people go viral 
for that one video and are able to put the time in to like make that bigger. This is true. You know, like a lot of people, like, I feel like there's this, like this mentality of you went viral. So now you're going to be rich, but it's like, you can't just like, you can't get one viral video and quit your job. I mean, like that would be crazy. I'm sure some people have done it, but there is a level of sort of like, okay, I got a couple viral videos. I've got a hundred thousand followers or whatever. I want this to be my job, but now I need to do all these steps. You know, I've watched all these videos. I've talked to all these strategists. Like I need to do these steps to like turn this into a business. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people really can like access that. I mean, there's a level of like education. There's a, a level of time commitment. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if privilege is the right word, but just the ability to sort of like blow it into a full-fledged business. I think a good example of that also is Keith Lee, the food creator who's reviewing restaurants in Las Vegas. He was completely and totally broke and then started making these videos and that's what catapulted him at the very beginning he probably didn't have a lot of resources to invest in help so he had to really push himself in order to figure out a way that he can grow but also monetize from what he's doing so it's kind of cool to see yeah creators like that that are able to like you said, also without maybe the certain privilege of certain resources to be able to test and experiment and try things out that are able to just with sheer passion and and interest and desire to help people be able to catapult themselves into a more impactful career. I I agree. I think it really is a a privilege to be able to test. I think that some, some of that pressure though, maybe that you have when you don't have that privilege to do it is also what ends up creating some of those diamond creators where like, that's it. This is the only option I have. Like this is all I I can do, you know? Yeah. But I appreciate you so much for coming on and, and sharing your insight and just talking more about the creator economy and all of these different things that you're able to, to shed more light on as somebody who has 10 plus years of experience working in PR and, and influencer marketing. My last question for you is maybe one piece of advice that you have for a creator or an influencer that you think they should know about either working with brands or making a business out of being a creator or anything. So there's another debate. This goes back to like one of the first questions you asked about like, what are things that like you wouldn't know not being on the brand side. And there's this kind of debate with managers that I have all the time about, should you post products you love without getting paid? Are you getting free publicity? Mm, That's an interesting question. Yeah. And a lot of managers, surprisingly to me, tell them not to. They'll say like, you know, obviously if you use something every single day or like an iPhone or something like that's fine. But like, you know, if you're using a specific, you know, Tula face wash, okay. you shouldn't be doing a whole video fo- focusing on it without getting asking, you know, without pitching and seeing if you can do a brand deal. Okay. And this, this is a little bit outdated because it doesn't super apply to TikTok when you're posting like three videos a day. How do you not talk about things? This is a little bit more of like Instagram kind of um, focus, but I used to hear that a lot and managers would say like, don't give this like free publicity. And I just want to kind of clue into how it works on the brand side. Mm. Usually the first step of finding influencers is finding people that organically post. And when I tell that to managers, they're like, yeah, but you know, it's again, with the free publicity and like, you know, it's not our job to do the sales without getting paid and it's not fair. It's a free audience, but the brands want people that love their product. Like, especially the smaller brands where the founders involved in these conversations, like it, 
it fills their ego to know that this person is like going to target and actually purchasing the product without any thought of getting paid for it. So I always say, if you want to start working with brands, post about products you love, tag the brands, like use hashtags that the brands are using, like do the activities that you would do. You don't have to do like a, you know, 30 minute thesis on why the product is amazing and go through the ingredients or anything like that. But, you know, be real with what you're using and use that content. Send those links when you're doing your pitch um, and say, I love Tula. I just love it. I, I've tried everything else for whatever reason. It works the best on my skin. And I would love to partner if there's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Sure, seven videos I've done washing my face with it. You know, like that is like, that is so you know, uplifting to whoever's receiving that email because like even the brand people that aren't part of the brand, even the agency people, the sort of in-betweens, we still like feel like our brands are our babies. So when people are talking about our babies, you know, it makes us feel good. So I think that's, that's one piece that I don't know if people are still giving that advice, but it was a big thing a couple years ago where they were like, never post for free. And I was just like, I had a contract, I think what brand it was. I worked on Ikea for a while. I did like most of their influencer for like consumer brands in the US. And our first line of defense was to go through and just search Ikea hashtag. And those were the people that we would pick for our register. Mm. And we would send them like full bedrooms. Like we would send them so much stuff. Um, and it was usually just because we truly knew that they loved outfitting their houses and our furniture. Right. They're not just thinking about this as a career, but also this, this is a brand I love and is a staple in my house. When they get brand deals for things like that, it's easier to make them seem like they're not ads. Because right. you already love Ikea, so it should be easy to talk about it like you did in eight of the previous exactly. videos. Fans <laughs> are going to see, like we had a guy do like his his backyard. We like outfitted him with like backyard stuff. And he like brought us inside for a video and his entire inside was, was Ikea because he had purchased it. Oh, that's so, so cute. You know, that's just like, it's just a good feeling for the brand. And nobody in his audience ever was like, why did you do that partnership? Like everyone just got it immediately. Right. We know, like you're getting a brand deal with a brand that you literally post about every day. Like that's awesome. So just, yeah, I just think highlighting things that you love, that's all part of your, your brand and your authenticity and it will help you secure partnerships. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for your time and all of your expertise. It was amazing to chat with you and I appreciate you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was so nice getting to chat with you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for tuning in to Kindly Gifted. To support the podcast, please leave a review, share with your friends, and don't forget to subscribe. Make sure you follow me on TikTok at Kate Mob for more creative secrets from the internet's momager. See you on the next episode of Kindly Gifted.